everybody and welcome back to beware the artist uh this week on the show we have bill schmidt um bill how are you doing today i'm just fine um if you want to go into it and tell us a little bit about who you are and what is it that you do sure um well just a, a, a brief bio uh i grew up in new jersey um i uh went to the pennsylvania academy of fine arts as an undergraduate in philly and in 1969, I moved to Baltimore to go to grad school at the Maryland Institute College of Art, um, which back then was not MICA, it was the Institute. Um, I think it's sort of interesting that, that both of the art schools I went to, um, I went to before they got acronymized, is that a, wor a word? Because uh, PAFA was the academy when I went there, and MICA was the Institute. Um, but anyway, I got my MFA from the Hawkberger School of Painting. Uh, I worked with Grace Hardigan for two years. So I got my MFA in, in um, 1971. And I um, did the, the, the part-time teaching circuit for roughly a decade um, out of grad school. I did have a, a, a non-tenure track, uh, two-year appointment at UNBC. Uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And uh, when that ended, I decided um, I didn't want to go back to the to the itinerant uh, adjunct um, routine. And I kind of stumbled into um, a new trade. I became I, I learned how to guild on the job. I, I started working for a guy I knew in art school. Um, and I did gold leaf restoration for um, almost 15 years, 14, 15 years, um, restoring picture frames and mirror frames and doing some architectural building. Um, when I left that job, I went uh, to work for a small furniture restoration company um, as a Finnish restorer. And uh, basically I was a French polisher for about four years. Uh, French polishing is a very old, shellac-based, labor-intensive furniture finishing method. It's a very beautiful way of, of, of finishing a piece of furniture. Um, and around that time, I started teaching again part-time. I became the resident artist in the post-baccalaureate program at MICA, which is run by my friend Christine Neal. And um, just to cut this a little bit shorter, I... Uh, um, I, I was in that position for uh, part-time for, for five years. And then I became the interim director um, when the founding director stepped down. Um, I held that position for 18 years um, and retired a year and a half ago. Um, I am also a musician, as you know, and um, I've been playing traditional American music of various kinds on uh, fiddle, guitar, banjo. I also play the ukulele every now and then. Um, and I've been doing this for, well, since I was a teenager, really. I started playing guitar when I was a kid. and uh, Picked up banjo and fiddle in the early 70s. And it's been a very uh, big part of my life for, for a very long time. Great. Um, so do you consider yourself mainly a painter? Yeah. 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 Um, even though even though I made sculpture for twenty years. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel as though there's a there there is a very 
sculptural element to to your work. I I, I find that the abstractions they they have a, a sense of body to them, and there's always this at least in the recent work um, there's this kind of shape or figure or mass that starts to emerge from kind of the center of the compositions. Um, do you want to talk to what's what's happening there? What's going through your head? Sure. Um, I, I started doing the, these paintings, which I refer to as, I mean, it's kind of an iconic presentation, you know, as you say, an, an image shape or configuration that, that sits in the center, uh, very often a square, but sometimes a rectangle, a vertical rectangle. Um, you know, I've always been interested in shape. And, and, and one of my favorite things to do for years has been to, to invent shape for the sake of invention. I, you know, I've got sketchbooks and, and you know, flat file drawers full of drawings that, 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 you know, where I've engaged in that process. And, and I had made a few, um, you know, tentative attempts to, to, to paint based on that idea. And I kind of felt that there wasn't enough there to, to kind of engage me ultimately engage the viewer. But um, about four and a half years ago, um, I decided what the heck, I really wanted to make some, some these very simple pared down paintings. And, uh, you know, one of the, the real impulse was that um, I, I wanted to um, exert more uh, restraint in my work, you know, um, that uh, my MO, it seemed to me, for better or worse, and sometimes worse, was to start the painting simply, and then just keep adding stuff until either it looked good or there was no more room to add anything else. And, you know, that's that's not a great strategy always. So, um, you know, so that impulse to, to be more restrained and, and really pare down my means along with sort of engaging in my love of shape and basically make small, very simple paintings that are a portrait of a shape. Um, and then that broadened into, you know, portraits of little configurations and linear things. And um, so that that sort of thread in my work was happening while I was making more, you know, the more layered, complex paintings with a number of different characters, uh, you know, in the drama at hand. The uh, I feel as though your 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 color choices they're they're very meticulous. It, it's not it's not impulsive. It, it feels very planned, very um, organized. Um, how how do you go about choosing these color combinations within the paintings? Um, they they really very much develop as a part of the process. Um, you know, I'm using gouache. I'm using traditional gouache, um, so it, its water solubility is a given. You know, and it, it is it, it is always water soluble, um, and without really um, devising this as a strategy, uh, I um, I realized a while back. I've been painting in gouache for over fifteen years now. Um, I, I tend to use color right out of the tube, and and mixtures happen by virtue of how I layer the gouache mm. and how I manipulate it. So, um, you know, there, there may be certain areas in any given painting that, that you know, uh, some of the linear work that I'm doing, let's say, is a color that is you know, right out of the tube. But a lot of the, the other areas are the result of, of, of careful layering of washes of wash one on top of the other or, or scraping. I do a lot of, of removing of paint. Um, you know, I, the joke between my wife and, and myself when 
I come home from a day at the studio, she's, she'll say, so how did it go? And, you know, one answer is, well, I, I removed a week's worth of work today, you know, or, or I took off more paint than, than I applied. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, an answer to your question happens very indirectly. And, and I, I don't always have um, a clear strategy about color when I start out a painting, I have a starting point. And um, very often, um, you know, I mean, you posted that that sort of greenish painting that started out as a red painting, you know. Um, so, I mean, that that's it's not uncommon for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and my initial impulse might be, you know, I'm going to start out with green today and then see what happens. I, I, one thing I did notice, speaking of green, um, um, someone observed that uh, in my studio, um, she said, boy, you sure like green, don't you? So do I. And I thought, oh, yeah, these paintings are all green. And, and it really got me to think about how I work with color. And I realized that my sort of kind of default setting coloristically was, um, you, you know, to work with blues and greens and, and cooler colors. And then um, to use warmer um, accents, yellows and oranges and reds and whatnot. So, so I, I deliberately then made a few paintings that sort of flipped that, where, where they were they were largely warm reds, oranges, and yellows, and then and then um, uh, and then cools, blues, and greens maybe provided that that accent. But um, um, but after I made those paintings, I was right back to my <laughs> my, my default set for the most part. Um, I know um, in your in your process recently, you've been bringing in the tablet. How has that been uh, helping you generate these paintings? Um, it, it's just become one of my most valuable tools. I got it, you know, maybe five years ago. And my original thought was this would be just another sketchbook, you know, that would allow me to draw. Um, and would because it is it's such a different beast than the sketch pad, the pencil, let's say, that I would likely come up with things that I wouldn't come up with when working more traditionally. Um, and I still do that occasionally. Um, but, you know, I would never really, I never intended to, to make, um, in other words, I, I knew that I couldn't make, make a painting in the tablet and then, then paint that in an analog fashion. That would be a fool's errand, really. Um, but it was just a way of generating ideas and configurations and stuff. Um, what became clear to me after a while was its value in, in helping me work through the process of making an individual painting was, was tremendous. And very often what I will do, like often at the end of the day, a painting's in progress, I will photograph it in the tablet, take it home with me. And, um, you know, while I'm drinking my martini um, during cocktail hour with the wife, uh, you know, I can kind of tweak the thing and figure out what, what the next step is, you know, and, and I do that in the studio too. And, you know, with the gouache, I get to a certain point in these paintings and, you know, early on I can splash around a fair amount, you know, and, and things get painted out, they get lost and found and reestablished. Um, but once things kind of get pinned down and, 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 and I'm liking where it's headed, um, I have to plot my moves pretty carefully. I just can't go in um, half cocked and 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 you know add something because um, you know at a certain point I, it gets it gets to be an all or nothing proposition. And if, if I screw up, um, it can be really hard to fix, and I may have to wipe them out and you know start all over again, which which happens. 
you've seen evidence of that in my studio. I feel so like, it, it, yeah. the, the tablet is a very, very important tool to me. I feel like there's a, a certain luminosity to the tablet that might not translate to um, the, the physical realm um, within the painting, but yet at the same time, there's, there's such a, a large area of vibration that happens in a lot of your work. And there is a kind of generate, uh, generating of, of luminosity happening through these layers um, within, within the panels. Yeah, I, um, you know, light is really important to me. And I mean, even though these are nominally abstract paintings, you know, I started out as a still light painter, you know, and, and an observational painter. And, and, and I was always interested. I remember, you know, when I was at the academy, always just being really just obsessed with the way the world looked and, and, and how I could, you know, capture that in some way. And of course, a, a big part of that is how light falls on form and, you know, just how that works and, and how it affects color. And, um, and, and I think that that's real, that's still a part of my work, but there are some of the linear details that are in my paintings are function as kind of as highlights in a sense and, and help create space. Now it's a very compressed space, but it's space nevertheless. Your, your choice of scale, how does that factor into the work? Because I know your sculptures were a bit larger and these paintings, they tend to fall in a, um, maybe around this size. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're eight, eight by eight or the little ones, uh, 16 by 16. I do like squares, but I, I you know, I do paint some rectangles. Um, you know, in part that has to do with my choice of medium, you know, gouache is, is a miniature medium, you know, mm. um, and, you know, it comes in little tubes and I think it works best at a smaller scale, although I know some artists have made bigger paintings. Um, you know, I think in addition to that, um, I've always been a bit of a miniaturist at heart, I think. I do like working close. Um, I was an avid model maker when I was a kid. And, you know, I spent a lot of time like, you know, this far away from a piece of balsa wood with an exacto knife in my hand, you know, and, um, and, and I've done uh, very small intimate work over the years, even though I've made big paintings and it's sort of, you know, moderately large sculpture. Um, but to me, there is something very powerful about a small intimate work of art, a painting, especially, um, that, that the way you, one engages with that, you know, it's, it's a one-on-one -on -one engagement viewer and, you know, not more than one person can really stand in front of a foot square painting and, and you know, and, and engage with it. Um, and, and, and I think that that's, that's very important to me. And, and, and there is something about that, that process of, of working very close, you know, um, I'm sometimes I've got to take my glasses off and I'm, you know, I'm this far away from the panel. Um, and, you know, your, your world falls away, you know, that, that, that when I, sometimes when I'm working, my world is no bigger than that one square foot of panel in front of my face. And, um, there, you know, it's a mesmerizing process. And, 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 you know, my hope is that, you know, the viewer will sort of, their experience will kind of mirror that when, when they approach the work and give themselves over to it. They are they are a foot away or a matter of inches away from it, um, and their world falls away too, and they enter into the space of that. that painting. I think um, one of my favorite.
kind of quotes. I don't, I don't remember who said it, but um, you know, you, you start working in the studio and you're, you're in there with everyone that you've ever interacted with, everyone you've ever spoken to. And then as you start to work, as you start to paint, they all start to leave the studio. And when you can finally get to that moment where it's just you in the studio, you know, you're in that mode of making. And uh, that's just so true to get, to get lost in that, that moment of making. Um, and I, I love that uh, translation that you, you're trying to bring that to the, to the viewer, to have them in that one-on-one -on -one moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, 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 you know, any work of art, I, I think at the very best, the experience of the viewer in some ways mirrors that of the person who made, made the work. You know? um, that notion of, of, of voices in your head. I, a very wise person one time told me, said, we all have voices in, in our head that, you know, that are speaking to us, but they're, they're not all, not all of them are giving us good advice. <laughs> so so true. <laughs> Um, so you first came to Baltimore in 1969, um, yep. and you've, you've been here ever since. Um, what was, what was it like being an artist in Baltimore in the late sixties, early seventies? Yeah, well, um, you know, Baltimore was a much different place back then. I mean, I was in, I, I came to town pre Harbor place, you know, um, so the scene was much smaller, obviously, you know, Micah was tiny then to what it is now. Um, you know, there were just two grad programs at MICA when I, when I came in 69, uh, Hofberger and Reinhardt, uh, the sculpture program. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, it was, there was a scene. And um, I think that, that for me, things really kind of took off. And I, I moved to Fells Point uh, about a year out of grad school. And, and there was a sort of burgeoning artist bar kind of um, good time scene happening down there. And, you know, prior to that, the, you know, the bars were, were pretty rough and tumble Siemens bars. And, and gradually they started uh, being taken over by, by newcomers. And, and um, you know, I lived, uh, you know, about two blocks from the foot of South Broadway. I was there for from, I don't know, 72 until 78, 79, something like that. And boy, it was a great scene. It really was. I mean, there were a lot of artists down there. Uh, Bertha's had just opened up. That was a real hangout. Uh, Turkey Joe's, a number of other really, really great places. And, and, you know, there were artists all over the place. The old Fells Point Gallery, which was actually run by the Alumni Association of MICA, was a real focal point. I had my first one-man show there in the mid-70s. Wow. Um, but, you know, I, I, and I've said this many times in conversations about the art scene in Baltimore, um, I, I never cease to be uh, just blown away at how things have grown and, 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 and what we have in this town right now. I mean, it is just fantastic. And, and you know, even, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, you, you know, if you told me what things were going to be like today and the number of galleries, really good artist run galleries, um, and, and just great artists of, of every shape and size. Um, it, it really, um, it's exciting to be a part of it. It, it really, really is. So would you say that was kind of uh, a catalyst in, in keeping you here? Just kind of seeing that, that scene start to grow and, and seeing the, uh, the energy that was happening around it? 
I think the catalyst that kept me here was a certain lack of ambition. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, um, I planted roots here, you know, and, and made friends. And, um, you know, I, I know you want to talk a little bit more about my music, but um, in, in the mid, I think it was in 76 or something like that, I was a founding member of a, um, an old time string band. And I, I played with those guys for, um, I guess, seven or eight years before I left the band. They, they can, and, and during that period, I, I was very much involved with music. We weren't a full-time band, we were active and played festivals and made a couple recordings and even toured Europe. Um, so that was just such a, um, an important part of my life that the notion of leaving that it just um, was not something that I was really considering. And when I left the band, I just felt really, you know, rooted to this place. Um, and then I rejoined the band after being out of it for 15 years. They, they invited me back in and, and uh, I accepted the invitation. And we, we played for another couple of years after that. Um, but I think that, you know, there, I, I love this town. I absolutely love this town. Warts and all. I mean, it is just such a great place. And people here are terrific. And like I said, I mean, I, um, you know, my friends are here. Um, how would you say, you know, having these two creative outlets, you have your music and then you have your um, painting. Um, do they ever cross kind of contaminate each other in a good way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Contamination is, uh, that, that does not suggest a, a desirable process. But, uh, uh, I get the question. Um, you know, for years, I, I didn't give a lot of serious thought to the connections between, you know, these two things that I do. It just, it, it just, Casually, I think of that. Well, of course, they're related because it's the same guy doing both, you know. Um, but about, I'd say about 15 years ago, a good buddy of mine, Dave Rice, who's a, an amazing harmonica player from Ohio, uh, was looking at some of my paintings. And he said, these look like our music. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, hmm, I might just want to think about this a, li a little more and a little more deeply. And I and I have done that, you know, um, over the ensuing decade and a half or so. And, and you know, I, I've just I, I've looked at those two activities, you know, every which way. One thing that um, that has occurred to me is that I'm really lucky in that I have these two very different creative engagements. And which, which allows me a level of self-understanding because, you know, when I think about how I might play a fiddle tune and I think, of, you know, what I attend to when I'm learning that and trying to make that tune my own. And these are, these are traditional tunes, so I'm, I'm not trying to reinvent the music. You know, I'm very much occupying a, a, a very prescribed realm. Um, but when I think about what it is that I pay attention to, I realized it's the same stuff I pay attention to when I'm making a painting. And for example, you know, the notion of phrasing in music is real important. And basically, you know, it's, it's, it's how the larger piece, the piece of music is constructed of its various chunks, how those chunks relate to one another, what's the space between them, so on and so forth. You know, I'm a phraser when I paint, you know, I, I, I attend to, to the same 
kind of thing. You know, when you're making you know any work of art, it's it's made up it's of its constituent parts and how do they fit together? What's the relation of one part to the next? Um, you know, I'm also a detail person, um, and, and I think that's evident in my music. You know, the the music that I play, let's say, just you know, concentrating on on the old fiddle tunes, they're they're very complex, typically. Um, and when you're playing in an ensemble, whether it could be just fiddle and banjo, fiddle, banjo, guitar, um, it, the music is very dense. Um, it's very layered, and it, I think in the best of those, you know, those old performances, and hopefully my, my performances, you know, there are all kinds of um, internal tensions in the music, you know. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day, um, that you know, that notion of of internal tension, thinking, and it's important to my work. I'm thinking about you know Hans Hoffmann's push and pull, you know, the creating space by virtue of, of color, variation, shape, and whatnot, but not in a, in a kind of traditional pictorial way. Um, but my paintings are very much about internal tension, internal tensions, you know, uh, and establishing kind of equilibrium pictorially. Um, well, you know, you bow the fiddle with pushing and pulling. And 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 the bowing of an old time fiddle tune is is what creates rhythmic nuance and, and the heartbeat of the tune. Um, and uh, you know, again, I'm still thinking about these connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I knew you were going to ask me about that, <laughs> um, it, it led to this other kind of like, holy shit moment. You know that that you know. That that push and pull thing literally happens when you when you're playing the fiddle, and that's what creates those internal tensions mm -hmm. within within a fiddle. I love this uh, idea of uh, of phrasing that you're taking the phrasing from the mu the music and you're seeing that connection within within this work, um, which makes me think about how you might um, kind of organize and curate a solo show. Are you thinking about these things when you're kind of making a body of work? Are you thinking how they exist within um, a room together, or are they kind of independently subjugated in their own little world? Um, but are they kind of, a, or are they part of a larger language that you're trying to grasp at? Well, I think both, really, mm -hmm. both. Uh, you know, that I, I mean, even though I think you could argue that that I am, you know, working in series in a way. Actually, I have several. Several. I mean, there are several several subsets within my work, um, but. I, I I don't really. I think once the work is done, then I start thinking about how, you know, various paintings would work together. And I, you know, I had a show at, at Viz Arts down in Rockville, Maryland, um, last spring, which uh, Viz Arts shut down the day that my show um, opened in, in the middle of March when everything shut down. Um, so really, no one got to see that show except virtually. But um, you know, mounting the show was its own reward, and I, I, I wanted to show the simpler paintings, you know, the iconic—I uh, mm -hmm. call them my one thing paintings—just uh, as a way of identifying them. And of course, then there are the grids that I do that are sort of another subset within that group. But anyway, I decided I was just going to show those those simpler paintings, but. 
um, there were some real challenges in terms because there is a range within that, uh, you know, that 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 subset of work that um, there were some paintings that just didn't make it in because I couldn't get them to work in that group. Hmm. Um, but um, and, and I had got a lot of, of input from friends who visited the studio and kind of helped me make some choices about what, what would work and what might not work. Um, in the studio when you're working, what is what is the atmosphere? Do you have music playing? Do you have um, podcasts on? What's what's the what's happening in your studio when you make? Yeah, um, I I um, I know a lot of do you know do audio books and podcasts and stuff. I I, I don't do that. Um, it's music or talk radio usually. <clears throat> I was uh, talking to a, a painter from New York a couple of years ago. We were both musing about you know how many paintings were made to the sound of Terry Gross's voice on fresh air. You know? um, but, but I do, I, I listen to music a lot and I tend not too much to listen to the music that I play because mm. I find it can be a distraction. Uh, you know, I'll hear a piece of music and say, Oh, I always wanted to learn that. Or, or what's the name of that? Too? You know, but um, I listen to a lot of jazz, blues, rock and roll. Um, I'm pretty eclectic in my taste. Uh, I, I had, I've always been a Thelonious Monk fan. And, um, oh, I guess I know, five, six years ago, a guy saw my painting and didn't know anything about me at all. I said, you know, I think a Thelonious Monk when I see these paintings. That's probably the best compliment I have ever gotten about my work. <laughs> so, of course, that I, I, I that upped my Thelonious Monk listening. I went out and bought a couple of box sets. So I probably listened to, to Monk more than anything else in the studio. I remember when I was in grad school, um, I, I was talking to my professor uh, during a studio visit about um, kind of the music that he has in his studio, the music that I have playing in my studio. And then I was telling him kind of my like upbringing, where I'm from. And he's like, it sounds like you just fell out of a Bruce Springsteen album. And I, I kind of <laughs> I took that as a bit of a compliment. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so being that you you are a musician and you you are a painter um what are some of your kind of what are your go-to artists to listen to outside of the studio and what are your go-to painters to look at outside of the studio hmm. um well i mean you know musically when 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 i'm you know not in the studio I'm listening to a lot of archival recordings, field recordings of, of, of old fiddlers and banjo players and singers. And, and um, you know, the, the, the golden age of recorded old time music. And that's what I play. It's called old time music. That sounds really generic, but that is in fact what it's called. Um, you know, the golden age of recorded old time music was uh, from, you know, early 20s, 1924 um, until the depression hit, which killed that, that industry, but, but um, you know, people were recorded on 78 RPM records and, and you know, there, there are um, a multitude of old recordings and, and a lot of these have been reissued. They're, they're widely available now. So I'd listen to a lot of that. And, and of course, you know, my contemporaries, young, younger bands who are playing this music. Um, you know, I do, do listen to a lot of blues. I finger picked the guitar. I'm a huge Mississippi John Hurt fan. So um, you know, he's always a go-to. Um, you know, with regard to artists, um, you know, I mean, there are so many people who um, who I look at and I, you know, I tend to, I was thinking about this because I figured you'd probably ask me this question that, you know, a lot of 
let's say, painting that I like, you know, I, I, I like it maybe because it shares a certain sensibility with my own work, um, but mostly just because looking at the work gives me pleasure for some reason, you know, um, that, that I don't have big philosophical uh, reasons. Um, I like a lot of, of representational painters. Um, you know, Bob Bechtel, the, the photorealist who died um, not all that long ago, has always been a favorite painter of mine. And I think in a way, you know, his sort of exacting sensibility um, and, and, you know, his paintings were, uh, I would say, deeply considered. <laughs> and that's a quality that I, I really respond to. Um, I, guess I sort of see, you know, him attending to certain things that I attend to in my work even though the work's highly different. Um, you know, speaking of artists, we've lost Tom Naskowski, um, just a great abstract painter, great painter. Um, it's been a favorite of mine for a long time. Um, you know, back when I was making sculpture and still, uh, Martin Currier, I think is a tremendous artist. Um, these are some people who come to mind. But, you know, you ask me who I look at when I'm not in the studio, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, talk about who I'm looking at in the studio these days because I, I, I cleaned out my desk and found a bunch of postcards of, of paintings that I've collected over the years and a few favorites and and I happen to have one of them right here and I don't know how how this will um, will uh, will read you can kind of you can see that um, yeah it is an amazing painting. It, it's the Ghirlandaio's portrait of, uh, I never get the name right, Giovanna Tornabuoni. And, you know, this is a, a lousy reproduction, but I have seen this painting in person. Uh, my wife and I were um, in, in uh, Spain, oh gosh, I forget how many years ago, and there was a show at the Prado of Renaissance portraiture. Um, and that painting was, was in the show. And it's an absolutely phenomenal painting. And, and the, um, I don't know how well it will, will across but but there is a world in the sleeve of her garment there it is just this amazing uh, it, it just it leaves me speechless and you know another thing I thought of in, in looking at this painting that um, Jim Nutt's paintings of women I don't know if you're familiar the Chicago mm -hmm. Harry who images painter um, his, his later paintings um, are, are I'm a big big fan of it and, and he's he seems to owe a debt to, to this Carolyn Dialogue. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a, a very favorite painting of his because I, I, I see the connection. There. When I was uh, <laughs> when I was studying in Florence, I uh, I had kind of a mind blowing experience. I hated Pontormo. I hated his sense of weight, scale, everything happening in his paintings. I didn't get it. Didn't get it at all. Um, and then I was studying art history while I was in Florence and went and saw one of his paintings in person. And it changed my perspective of, of his work completely. The shot silk, the, the sense of gravity that you're feeling when you um, kind of look at these works and you just start to float um, through the air with these figures that feel as though they have no sense of gravity. Um, I feel that there's such a disconnect in our world with um, actually seeing productions of art online um, versus actually witnessing them. And, and so many um, of people today take that as face value, um, you know, just experiencing things online and not experiencing art in person. Um, 
would you like to talk to that at all in terms of uh, experience? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, obviously that there, there are there are things that you that you don't get, that you don't see, that you don't feel. You know, when you're looking at a digital image, and, and let's just talk about painting. You know, surface and scale are two obvious ones. Mm. But I heard someone talking about this this issue. Um, I guess it was after the pan pandemic started, and, and people were really not looking at art in person. Um, and you know, the notion. I mean, if you think about how you engage with a painter, okay, you, you know, you you walk into a gallery or a room in a museum, and 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 you see that work from a distance, and you you know, as you gradually approach it, your understanding of that work changes and grows. And, you know, I mean, to me, it's very exciting to, you know, you, you know, you kind of, you, you form a notion about a work that you, when you see it from across the room, you know, you get information and, you know, as you get closer, you're, you're, you're verifying that, um, you know, that, that immediate understanding. Um, and, you know, when you get within a foot or, or even inches of the work, I find it really exciting when um, you have to totally re, um, rethink your understanding of the world, you know, that there are surprises there, or there may be something about the way it was painted, which is totally counterintuitive or, 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 or just runs totally counter to, to your impression of the painting from across the room. So, so the way that you approach the work, I think to me is real exciting, and you, that you can't do that, um, you know, with a digital image, it's there, you know, it, it, it is, I mean, you could hold the screen away and, and move it in, but that would not, not be the same thing at all. Um, so in, you've spent many years as, as a professor and educator, as well as an artist and musician. Um, if you had to give some advice to a future group of creatives that are coming up in the world, what would your advice be? Well, I, you know, I think that probably the, 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 the biggest general bit of advice I could give would be don't lose sight of those core values, interests, those things that made you want to put a mark on a piece of paper or pick up a paintbrush or make a piece of sculpture in the first place. What, who are you, you know? I mean, your job as an artist is to make the work that only you could make, you know? And it might be the work that only you would want to make, but that's kind of the same thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that, that um, you know, art school for all its value and, 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 and with the best intentions of, of faculty, um, I think that we, we tend to throw so much information at students that they can really lose sight of, of the, those, you know, that 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 core within them. Um, and you know, I, I, I would send my students, my post back students, off to grad school, and say a little prayer. You know, like please don't mess them up too bad. You know, uh, ho hopefully it won't take them a decade to recover from grad school. And I think by that I meant was that they will lose sight of, again, the, the, those core impulses, the things that make you you and make you want to go back to the studio every day and keep doing this. How do you do that? Sometimes you have to ignore what people are telling you. You know, you have to be... Um, you know, you have to, there has to be a healthy level of skepticism, I think, you know, that, that, that don't, don't, 
buy everything that's being sold. You know, give it a run, try it out. You need to be open, but but you you know, Lord knows. I mean, you you you've got two degrees in art. You 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 can't listen to everybody to the same extent. You know. Yeah, that's a lesson that took me. Um, it took me a little bit to actually figure out. Um, there was there there have been several instances, especially in the years um, after grad school, where I was bouncing around with all these voices in my head and and not really following my my true kind of path. So I wish I would have had this conversation with you X amount of years ago when I <laughs> started grad school to keep that in mind as I as I went through the the yeah. meat grinder. Well, I mean, you know, I can hand out this advice, but put, you know, put, putting advice into play isn't isn't always the the, the easiest thing to do, you know. And, and I think related to this, I was I was thinking also about, um, you know, when I, I studied with Grace Hardwick, and uh, you know, people had asked me over the years, so what, what, you know, what did you learn from Grace? What did she teach you? And you know, Grace was not a conventional teacher; it was grad school, you know, and and you're not really taught in grad school, but it, but it took me a while to realize that, that, that what I got from Grace was, um, th- you know, this idea that, uh, oh, so you want to be an artist. Well, it's, it is, a, you are choosing a life. You are mm-hmm. choosing a life. And, you know, she certainly chose a life. Um, and, you know, she, she modeled that. She demonstrated that. Um, and I think that was, you know, it, it just, uh, that was the one big thing. Like, this, this is a lifelong commitment. You are choosing a life. That's so true. That's so true. And I, I think that's that's kind of the perfect note to, to end on. Um, so, Bill, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Um, if someone's looking for your work, uh, where can they find it? Um, unfortunately, I, I don't have an active website right now. Um, Instagram, um, I put up not all of my work, but, but, you know, a lot of it pretty regularly. Um, the, the Baker Artists Award, um, site, uh, sort of functions as a kind of quasi website for me. So if people want to go to Baker Artist Awards and do a search for Bill Schmidt, they, they would see several years worth of, of work. And I think that will probably be updated when, um, when great. Well, thank you so much. Um, this this has been a real pleasure for me. Um, and everyone, make sure you tune in next week for uh, our next episode. All right. See ya. Hey, thanks a lot. It's been great.